Ian Power with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor for the Home Discovery Show. This morning, coming up in just a few minutes from right now, we'll talk to Dr. Jenny Moore. She is the Associate Dean of Building Design and Construction Technology at BCIT. We'll learn about some of the programs that are being offered for people interested in getting involved in the sustainability side of construction. We talked the last couple of weeks about passive house technology and other technologies that use, uh, in the end, uh, I guess at the end of the game, use a lot less energy. They're very energy-efficient homes, passive house, and we'll learn more about it in a few minutes, is technology that uh, began in Europe and has now starting to, I think, take a bit of a foothold in North America, and it's being done elsewhere. The city of Vancouver has undertaken a program to have uh, passive house and other sustainable types of building uh, available exclusively in Vancouver for all new builds as they come online. And there's a timeline. We've had uh, Fortis BC on last weekend talking about their thoughts and their feelings about sustainable building and how it might affect their business and that of their customers. We'll get into that in a couple of minutes. We also want to keep a line open for you. We haven't done that nearly enough, Steve, uh, where we have uh, people with an opportunity to have at you. Uh, And I I mean that on the phone. If you've got something going on at your place and you want to bring it up or if you need some help, uh, well, at least through the radio on the phone, feel free to join us. It's uh, 604-280-9898 or star 9898. If you have a weekend project, a DIY, or perhaps you're planning a bigger project, uh, what might you need to think about that you haven't thought about? You've got the little contractor here with us right now. First thing I wanted to talk about was uh, a simple, what appeared to be a simple repair, turned out to be something a little bit more than just that. Uh, this is a was a, a, a just to paint the picture here. We're talking about a solid wood kitchen table chair, pretty standard. Would you say? Oh yeah, pretty sure. standard. Yeah, um, and the problem with the chair is it's split on the seam. The right. seam of the so the seat part of the chair where your bum goes split right down the middle. It was a clean split right on the joint. Right. Which I thought was a pretty I, was not a great place for a joint anyway, is it? Right well, in the middle? That's well, where all the the pressure is. Well, but the board it's probably made up of a bunch of boards. Right. A bunch of pieces put together, so it would be it would make sense to be along a glue joint possibly. And that's where the chair failed. Okay. So it split. So uh the chair was repaired. And uh, with glue, I think some Gorilla Glue or Crazy Glue or Wood Glue. Um, yeah, it could be, well, maybe not Crazy Glue. It probably would have been a wood-style glue. Yeah, I know there's a, and I'm dropping a brand name here, which I, I have no idea. Gorilla Glue comes to mind. Right, yeah. Are they, you familiar with that? I am, and they're um, they're good for chairs because it's a very thin glue, and it goes in if you wet the wood, and then it ex- helps expand the fibers. Okay, so that chair, the seat part where it split on the seam uh, at the joint, uh, failed. So it was brought back, repaired again. And it failed again. Okay. Same type of repair. Right. So the chair was then turned over to you. Right. Because your, your training by trade, uh, it, it, while you're a general contractor, you're really a, you're a joiner. Right. So you, what you did was take it from there. So you took this chair and you decided that once and for all, you were going to make the, <laughs> the final repair. What did you do? Uh, 
put some jewelry skills to task, which was uh, we use what's called a lamello, which is a brand name or biscuits, we call it, cookies. And essentially what that is, it's a, it's a piece of fibrous wood-style material that acts as a connector between two broken pieces. So we use a special machine that cuts a hole. It's sort of a half circle in both sides, both the adjoining pieces. Looks like a coin slot. Exactly, exactly, yeah. And, and, and then this, this biscuit is put in, to, in place to fill that gap that which the saw blade is now removed. And uh, the glued again, again, with the same kind of glue. And what that's doing is now getting some more surface area, stopping this tension from pulling it apart. And we use a different style glue. We put an epoxy style glue in there. So now, if it comes apart now, we've got big problems. So imagine then, if I can put it in layman's terms uh, or pedestrian language, it would be equivalent to what we would call, like, because you, you see this in like Ikea furniture, for example, these wooden dowels, except that instead of being a peg, it's a disc. Exactly. Yeah. So take so imagine that same thing. It's 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 uh, well, you said it. Instead of rounded, it's flat. And, and but these are made specially so that when the glue hits them, the moisture from the glue expands them, so it fills the hole. Right. And now becomes a really good uh, attachment. As as the IKEA dowels are, they're fluted, so it allows room for the glue to be inside them and expand. You know, that might have been my problem. Uh, when <laughs> I'm thinking about how many times I've done an, an Ikea dowel and, and not glued them. Are you supposed to glue them? Yes, it says that in the instructions. Hello? And, yeah, no, and, and I, I hold Anybody my hand home? up. home? Are you serious? I, I hold my hand up in inequitable guilt because we do some cabinets that are ready to assemble cabinets from different manufacturers, and it says put glue in them. What's the point of putting the dowel in if you're not going to put the glue in there? And 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 they're fine as long as you don't try to move them around. I'm all for the IKEA hack. I really am. As long as guys like you are installing them, I don't have a problem with it. I the question I have for you is that why is it every time I put? And we're getting off topic here, but why is it every time I put one of those things together, I've got extra dowels and extra things and extra pieces, and can't figure out for the life of me where they belong? And it's not because they're generous and they want you to have extras. <laughs> no. Just to have, because now I've got a I've got a box full of these things. Right. I, in fact, the box full of these things has out, <laughs> outlasted the furniture. Right. Well, now you have enough parts to make another. But well, not really. I have yeah. enough parts to make something, but nothing that I can use. Uh, my suspicion is you're giving um, options. There might be different ways to assemble generic products, whereas it could be a shelf on the left, shelf on the right. It might be if you're doing this application, you need this piece. So there could be multiple stepped, uh, or multiple options that you could be doing. Back to the chair as yes. we wrap this bit up. It, the, the reason I wanted to bring this up was because it's a good example of where you don't have to chuck it. You don't have to throw it into the landfill. And it, it, it's a solid piece of wood, or it's solid wood. It's hardwood. It's, yes. it's a nice quality wood. It's a good-looking chair, and it's one piece of a set. That's right. So if you lose that piece, you've basically broken up the set. You've only got a partial set. Now instead of sitting four or six people, you can only it's, it's one less. That's right, exactly. So is this something anybody can do, or do you have to have somebody who has the experience and, and the joinery skills to do it? Yeah, not really. I mean, you could do very simply what I've done um, with dowels, uh, I mean, I've got a special machine that does that, that lamello cutting. But no, why not? Try it. Save it. Yeah. And save yourself a lot of money. Absolutely. And keep the set. More so, so what did that repair cost, roughly? Um, retail cost, it, it could have been $200. Yeah. Physical actual cost, uh, you know, it's it's about 20 cents for the lamellos. So if you're do-it-yourself, it's about mm -hmm. 20 cents. Sure. Yeah, and your time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. 
Can you, could that chair, is that chair replaceable at $200? Bo- no. No. No, not at all. Okay. You have to find the same one. Save, and, and it's save natural, your stuff. Yeah, and it's natural wood. It is aged. So you're going to get, even if you get the same brand new chair, it hasn't aged as the others. The color's changed. Yeah. Uh, because there's those types of chairs that are very typical uh, that have been around for a while. Uh, they're solid wood. Why not save them? Absolutely. And, and conversely, if you've got a chair that has some kind of a covering on it, whether it be cloth or leather or some kind of a some kind of manufactured product, take the seat out and recover it. Absolutely. And that's pretty easy to do too, isn't it? That is. I mean, it, it's a staple gun, some fabric, some new fluff, and, and new life is born into it. And you got a, a brand new chair. Yes. All right. Let's take a break. Let's bring in our guest. Uh, Dr. Jenny Moore, Associate Dean of Building Design and Construction Technology. She's with BCIT, and she will be on the Home Discovery Show in just a moment on News Talk 980 CKNW. Welcome back. My name is Ian Power. I'm here with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. Uh, we spent uh, quite a bit of time on the Home Discovery Show talking about energy efficiency. And I really believe that new building designs, construction technology, and the environment are coming of age, if you will. A good part of that. Uh, is owing in some of the courses that are now being offered at BCIT. Joining us by phone is Dr. Jenny Moore. She is the Associate Dean of Building Design and Construction Technology at BCIT. Good morning. Good morning, Ian. Welcome, and uh, I'm glad that you were able to find some time to talk to us. And if if we could, could we start with some kind of uh, working definitions that might help us understand better? Uh, for example, what what do we mean when we talk about green buildings? So green buildings are buildings that have the environment in mind, both in their design, construction, operation, and deconstruction. They include things like sustainable material choices, uh, high energy efficiency, thermal comfort, health, healthy choices in terms of low off-gassing uh, finishes inside the building, that kind of thing. Okay. So we'll take that a step further because there's this uh, buzz phrase that's going around that seems to be picking up in popularity, and I'm, I'm curious to know why you think passive house is now catching on in North America? Well, the passive house standard has been around since the uh, mid-1990s. It's gained a lot of momentum in Europe and has slowly been gaining recognition in North America. We started here with LEED, the Leadership in Environmental and Energy Design, for an introduction to green buildings, and we've had some mixed results with the outcomes. Whereas the passive house standard is prescriptive and generally guarantees a high-performance energy um, profile for the building once it's constructed. So I think there's a lot of interest now in superseding LEED and going to passive house to try and get uh, more meaningful reductions in our greenhouse gas emissions and more meaningful energy savings for homeowners. And yet uh, the Energuide uh, that's produced by, I think it's Natural Resources Canada, hasn't really caught up to passive house no, well, the R22, which is the standard for um, the houses that are being promoted with Energuide, they're also very effective. So Passive House, um, it might be a little bit more efficient, but both home choices are, are equal. Uh, so I think, yeah, it's a bit of a debate which way you want to go or if you want to include both as equally commensurate. Now, here's another one, again, for in terms of a working definition, uh, because sustainability is a word we hear in, in all walks of life these days. Uh, when it comes to, to residential building, is there a way to quantify that or to help us to understand what we're talking about when we say sustainable? Well, sure. To be sustainable, 
sustainable, we need to live within the planetary boundaries of nature systems. And in order to achieve that, there's a big emphasis on being socially just or equal, equally fair with each other. In our built environment, we know we have the technology and know-how and skills available now to build buildings that are healthier and demand less of nature's energy and materials. So for, for sustainable buildings, those are buildings where the overall energy material throughput is much lower over the life cycle of the building, and they're healthier for us to live in as well. Is the biggest obstacle to building more sustainable houses or residential, uh, whether it be condos or houses or what have you, is it cost? Because it seems that it's considerably more uh, costly to build passive house. And I know there, you, the the immediate argument is, well, over time you will have you will recapture some of that in, in energy savings. But the initial outlay is quite a bit uh, more expensive to build a passive house or anything that is close to the energy efficiency. I think it's a good question. I think cost is part of it, but I also think it's just practice and know-how. You know, when we say it costs more, well, ultimately, as a society, we're going to pay those costs. Either the builder pays the cost or the homeowner over the course of living in the building, or societally, we pay costs that are not monetary, such as climate change, for example. So the uh, kinds of impacts that we're seeing with sea level rise, increasing storm events, somebody's paying, quote-unquote, for that. So... The cost is one argument, but it's a limited argument. As we learn to build better, costs ultimately come down, and as the playing field is levelized, the costs aren't really the hurdle in the long run. I think it's more our ability to learn quickly how to move to constructing these types of buildings and penetrating the market, broadly speaking, with this new building format. Do these new building designs and technologies require a different skill set to that of what we would consider traditional home construction? So the change is in a more refined or mastery level of implementation. So buildings have been built uh, using passive solar design for centuries already. So in some cases it's not new. It's just getting back to what we historically have done well. But it's also the level of craftsmanship. So when you're building tight buildings, the uh, taping is very important, the joints are, they have to be very exact. So we're looking at a, a much more um, attention to detail, making sure that when we're putting in pipes and insulating those pipes, we leave enough room for a proper installation and wrapping of the pipes. It's that kind of careful attention to detail that we have to uphold when we're building high-performance buildings. Now, I know that BCIT is always and has been for years a, a leader in technology. It's right in the title, so you would, you would hope so. But I also know that in, in various faculties that the BCIT will respond to industry. And I'm wondering what industry is saying to you at BCIT in terms of present and future needs. So we definitely know that the demand for high-performance buildings is not going away. It's only increasing. We've been proactive in participating in the zero emissions conversations for several years now and have been bringing new curriculum forward to help respond to the demand of uh, industry for high-performance buildings. The best example probably is our Passive House Tradesperson course, which we're now running. It's the only such course in Canada. So we've had participants come from as far away as Prince Edward Island to take it. Mm, that's good. And are you finding that, uh, are you getting an equal representation of men and women interested in this type of building? Well, that's a great question. We have had a significant amount of women in the program, but generally our construction trades are still male-dominated. Yeah. 
I'm asking this for a reason because uh, recently you had some uh, uh, concrete work done, and uh, I, I wasn't overly surprised, to be very honest with you, that a woman showed up to do the job. And but the people around me seem to be quite shocked by it all, not not put off by it, but but surprised. And I, and I and I keep thinking that, and I don't want to paraphrase the prime minister. It's 2016, for goodness sakes. Should we be surprised at that? And what does it take to get more women involved in in these types of building trades? Well, as you may know, BCIT participates in a Women in Trades initiative to try and advance opportunities for women in traditionally male-dominated construction trades. uh, Women have great skill sets that they can apply equally to men in many cases. They may lack some of the brawn, but they're certainly uh, very, very good, for example, in welding, women typically perform very, very well with their skill and accuracy around the welds that mm. are being made. So I don't think we should be surprised to see more women. Uh, electrical is um, also in- seeing increasing amounts of women participation. It provides a good steady income for women that are looking to participate, and not everybody wants to sit at a desk all day. Uh, so this is a great opportunity for advancing the field for women. Well, I'm, I'm totally on board, and, and again, I never really gave it a second thought until somebody actually pointed it out. Is there some way, though, to encourage women to get more involved uh, because there is this, still this stigma exists that it's a male-dominated world? Well, we do offer some sets of courses that are exclusively geared towards promoting women in trades. So if somebody's interested, uh, if a woman's interested in, in participating in a foundation course, for example, they're, uh, they're welcome to participate in any of BCIT's courses. We're uh, very, very careful to be a um, considerate workplace. No harassment in the education is tolerated whatsoever, so all women are welcome in all of our programs. But we also have special programs that just target women in trades intake. So uh, there's both opportunities, and... Uh, our website has information, or they can contact me or anyone at BCIT to find out more about how to participate in the educational side of it, for sure. What is uh, the School of Construction and the Environment? The School of Construction and Environment is concerned with the natural environment, the built environment, and the relationship between them. So it's a fantastic place to learn about green buildings and how to advance the market for green buildings, both on the technologies and trade side. And it really speaks to BCIT's mission to be integral to the economic, social, and environmental prosperity of British Columbia. When you graduate, if that's the correct term, from these courses, uh, what, what do you do? receive a degree, diploma? What kind of paperwork comes with that? So BCIT offers a variety of credentials that start with certificates and go on to advanced certificates, associate certificates, diplomas, bachelor credentials, and even masters. We have a master's degree in building science. Uh, On the trade side, you would start with either foundation for two years and then look for an apprenticing opportunity, or you would start as an apprentice, which means that an employer has taken you on and you have employment with that um, corporation. You come to BCIT for set periods of time over four years to learn your trade, and in the interim, you're practicing it in the field under the supervision of your, your apprentice sponsor. If somebody is interested in, in green building design and construction technology, what would be a, a, a good way to enter into, into the program, uh, starting with BCIT? What kind of prereqs do you need, and, and what level of interest would you need to, to get involved? Well, you don't need any prerequisites because we provide all those entry-level courses, if that's what you're interested in. There's many fields. 
also we have an architectural building technology diploma program, which is a great place to enter. That can lead on to our architectural degree program, which has a very strong emphasis on sustainable design, green buildings, or construction management, people who are interested in overseeing the construction project. We also have construction supervisions, construction operations. They all include courses around green buildings and an environmental engineering program and civil engineering program. So there's many different programs, and there's even way more courses. You can take all kinds of individual courses, for example, energy modeling for building professionals. We have materials choices courses, um, this passive house tradesperson training. So it's a very fast-growing field. Do you have any thoughts um, on the use of fossil fuels in homes? Uh, In other words, natural gas, for example? Yes. Well, I think that one of the things that we're moving towards is the um, elimination, ultimately, of the need to use fossil fuels for space conditioning in our buildings. So the Passive House Standard is able to achieve a 90% reduction in traditional space heating requirements in buildings. And so that means that homeowners can dispense uh, with their traditional heating systems. And what they can then do is integrate more um, renewable energy technologies. So I think that over time, there may always be a small role for, for example, the use of natural gas in district systems that are offsetting some high demands for operational requirements in buildings. But generally, we know how to do a much better job. We know we can reduce our greenhouse gas emissions from the built environment by up to a factor of 10. And that's ultimately where we need to go if we want to be sustainable as a society. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic that this is um, where we're, we're going to land. Really appreciate your time. Where's a, a good place for someone to go to get more information on the programming? They can visit our website at www.bcit.ca slash construction. I'd like to have you back sometime. Dr. Jenny Moore, Associate Dean, Building Design and Construction Technology at BCIT. Uh, we thank you for your time today. Thank you, Ian. It was my pleasure. And we'll be right back on the Home Discovery Show. If you've got something going on at your place that needs attention, a question, a comment on anything we've been talking about, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 if you're on your mobile. We're on News Talk 980 CKNW. Have you ever wondered what the numbers and color descriptions on your light bulb packaging mean? You've got to choose from Kelvins, Lumens, Watts, etc. Angie Cho is a holistic interior architect, author, and sought-after expert in the fields of feng shui and green design. A registered architect and a certified feng shui practitioner, Angie creates beautiful spaces throughout New York and beyond the world. Good morning, Angie. Hi, good morning, Ian. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Uh, your book, your new book, is a bestseller on Amazon, and uh, which is a huge accomplishment for a first-time author. And uh, your book is it talks about all things that are green, uh, the do's and the don'ts, and uh, it's a hundred and hundred and eight ways to create holistic spaces, feng shui, and green design for healing and organic homes by Angie Cho. Congratulations! That's a, quite an accomplishment. Oh, thank you so much. I want to talk about color in lights, lumens. Uh, we've got lumens for light and kelvins for color. Uh, can you give a, a bit of a description of what that means and why is that important? Sure. You know, I thought that this was a great topic for your listeners because my clients all, all the time, people are really confused with what it, what 
color temperature is, what lumens is, but they know what they like and what they don't like. So mm-hmm. Kelvin is a scale which measures the color temperature. So something that is, say, 2,000 Kelvin or 2,700 Kelvin would be a warmer color, very close to like an incandescent bulb or a candlelight. And then something that's like 5,000 or 6,000 Kelvin would be a cooler blue light, which is better for maybe task lighting. For instance, I do a lot of artwork. I have a bright white light that's that's around like 5,000 Kelvin. That's really great for showing colors as they are, and it's easier to see what you're doing and have more precision with your work. When you're talking about lighting, putting lighting into people's homes, you have to break that down for them. For example, uh, you would uh, require this type of uh, lighting for reading, let's say, for example. This type of light may be uh, something a little bit warmer or softer in your bedroom or it's more relaxing. Is that how you approach it? I do. And to, to make it the least complicated for most people and maybe for your listeners, I generally recommend that people go around 2,700 Kelvin because that's the closest to incandescent light if you're getting uh, such like an LED bulb. Because I found that people really want and love that warm, relaxing feeling of an incandescent bulb. And if you get a LED bulb that's 2,700 Kelvin, that's the closest to, to um, an incandescent bulb. But, like, for instance, if I have someone that's doing a lot of task work, like like an artist or so forth, yes, then you would want, like, a brighter white bulb. Or even when we look at paint colors, when I look at paint colors with my client, you never look at a paint color under an incandescent bulb. You have to always look at it in daylight or else you're going to be fooled and it's going to – you're going to paint your walls and it's going to come out differently. Right. Now – I don't know what it what it's like. I know you're in New York, but here where we are, for example, you cannot buy a 60 or 75 or 100 watt incandescent bulb. You just simply can't buy them. They've been banned. So your choices are down to things like those curly CFLs, which I absolutely despise. <laughs> then you've got, you and I had this discussion during the week, and we had a bit of a disagreement on that. Then you've got your LED lights, and there's halogens, and halogens are quite nice. They burn out quickly, but they're very hot, and they're only about mm-hmm. a 50% saving on energy. Are you into any of that? Do you, do, do you get into the sort of the new lights? And then, and then we've got a new light coming on board pretty soon, which is graphene, which uh, they say will even put the LEDs to shame. Well, I have not heard of that except for when you told me about that. I'm curious to research that, but absolutely I do um, have to look at energy, energy efficiency because at least in New York, and I'm sure in most places in the country and also in Canada, Architects are actually required to meet certain energy requirements now when we design a home. So I have to, I cannot exceed a maximum amount of wattage for a space. So we also, you just, you touched on lumens earlier. So an energy efficient bulb will give the, the same amount of light for less wattage. So use less energy. So like a, maybe a 10 watt LED gives the same amount, of, emits the same amount of light or the same amount of lumens. should be the equivalent of 100 watts of uh, incandescent. It feels more like 35 watts of incandescent, in my experience. And so that's definitely something I have to look at all the time, because if I specify all inc- incandescent lights, which are still legal in the U.S., it wouldn't meet energy code requirements. So I always actually do. I specify lots of um, LED bulbs, which... 
give you energy efficiency. They last a long time. It does matter where you buy them from. The better quality bulbs last longer, emit a nicer color temperature, and they give more light. Well, that's been the big complaint. You get what you pay for. Well, sure. And the the complaint with the LED bulbs has been, till now, is that they're cumbersome. They've got the cooling fins on them in many cases. In some cases, they only produce 180 degrees versus 360 degrees of of off-put. And the color has just not been satisfactory. But that's all changing now because you can get LED light bulbs that look like old incandescent bulbs. They put 360 degrees of light out, and they come in a variety of of not only Kelvins but also lumens as well. I wanted to ask you how important the lighting is, energy savings in general, is to your clientele, and how that might play a role if it does into feng shui. Well, with most green uh, initiatives, there's really the balance between what is the comfort for the person person in the home or in the space versus the energy efficiency and how do you balance that? Because sometimes it's more comfortable, but then you have to use more energy. So there is a balance, and it, and it really depends client to client. Some are very practical, and they just want to save money, so they're really into the energy efficiency bulbs. But then some people are like, no, I hate the energy efficiency bulbs. I want to have incandescent lights. And so it really depends on the client. And that's not a choice that I make for them, but I can inform them and say like, hey, you know, there's these options out there that feel just the same. Because oftentimes when we test it out, unless they know, they don't actually know the difference. They believe in their minds that they can, they only like incandescent bulbs. But in reality, if they were tested, they never would have, like a blind test or not a blind test, but well, a blind test, they wouldn't, they wouldn't really know the difference. Sure. And feng shui wise, Definitely, whatever we can do in our environment that's passive to improve our mood and how we can relax in the space is definitely um, something that can be achieved through color and through light. And it is important. It is a factor. Okay. Is there a demand through your clients? I'm I'm curious now uh, about this part of the conversation. Because you're based in New York, I know you do a lot of work on the West Coast as well. But maybe there are some differences between what the U.S. market is demanding and what the Canadian market is demanding. For me, I see here where there is an increasing demand for a better light, but less expensive in terms of energy consumption. And there's a, a there's a real growing demand for that. And I'm wondering if you're seeing that. Uh, I'm, I'm not really hearing that from you. So I'm wondering if there is, is there a concern for that? There is, there is. But I think that it depends on the client. It really does. Like, the wealthier clients don't care about the energy savings that much, but sometimes they do because they're more uh, they, they're more concerned about the environmental impact of it. So it really depends. But I think that if at all possible, I always try to specify energy efficient lights because it just makes it makes the most sense. And honestly, a lot of the fixtures that are out there now. You just can't, you, you can only find fixtures that take energy-efficient light bulbs now. Exactly. And there's a whole variety of fixtures, too. So with the newer generation of LED bulbs, you can certainly use them in just about any kind of fixture, and, and they work quite well, and they're, they're a lot cooler, too, to, to run. In the 30 seconds that we have remaining, what should we look for, let's say, in, in the, the three key areas of the home, the kitchen, the bedroom, and the the living area. What type of uh, lumens and or Kelvin should we be looking at? Well, in the kitchen, you would want a um, cooler light, maybe like 3,500 Kelvin, and you want a lot of light. So 
you want maybe task lighting, so under cabinet lighting, and that's usually LEDs now, so that would be cooler. And I think that works really well, and it plays off the color of food as well, so you can truly see the uh, bright colors for food. And in the bedroom and living room would be quite similar, actually. You would go for a warmer bulb, like a 2700 watt, and I would... Instead of going for a certain amount of lumens, I would make sure that you add a dimmer. Sorry, got to leave it there because we're we're, we're <laughs> okay. over time. Angie Cho okay. is a New York architect and feng shui specialist. We'll have to leave it there until next time. We'll be back in a moment on the Home Discovery Show. Ian Power back with Steve Seaborn, the little contractor, 604-280-9898 or star 9898. Uh, we don't have to keep on this theme of green, but if you like, you can. Uh, anything else that's happening at your place. Good morning, Mike. Hi, good morning, Steve. Or, uh, Ian, uh, what I'm calling on is a couple of weeks ago, you had terrace and gas on, and he kind of... It was Fortis, B.C., actually. Okay. Uh, anyhow, uh, saying that the new technology coming in, new construction, there'll be no... Uh, natural gas for heating or fireplaces for cooking. Is that correct? As I understand it, uh, Mike, and I'm still trying to learn more about this as well, basically what the city plan is, it's actually, uh, this is an initiative from the city of Vancouver, and we had uh, Sean Pander on, who's the the manager of Green Building with the city of Vancouver, and what he said was to, to eliminate natural gas as a heating fuel. Not, I don't think it eliminates cooking, for example, if you have a natural gas stove or an oven, or if you have, uh, for example, your uh, water heater is uh, fueled by natural gas, or some people have clothes dryers that are natural gas. I think all of those things would stay, as I understand it. The main thing that they would want to eliminate, and that is the heating of your home, which uses up the most uh, energy, but it's not just the energy use, it's also the greenhouse gas emissions that they produce. On the, uh, on the, the uh, say, so you would still be able to have your fireplaces? Well, if you, if you have, is that, is that your coach there helping you out, or? Yeah, yeah, just uh, anyhow. What's her uh, name? Uh, Margaret. Margaret. Just hold on a second. Okay. Hi, you got to say this, please. You did. Wait, you were the one that said so. There'll be no gas fireplace. There'd be no no um, gas range. Yeah, and and no gas. And he and he said yes, or so. The, it would all be by electric. You said so that we'd have no gas fireplace. It would be electric. No gas cooking. It would be electric. And you said yes, and I was saying this to my husband. He said that's impossible. I, I would have to review that. It, it's it's very possible. I don't remember that exact uh, quote. However. Um, and I'm and, and both Steve and I are still coming to understand this whole plan. It is on the City of Vancouver website, by the way, if you want to look more into it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think that if you if you have it right now and it's in your home, you're you're set. It's yes, not. No, this is strictly for new new construction. Yes, and but it was said that you did a, had asked the question, and you said so. I have it that you wouldn't have. You know, you'd have electric. You'd have to have electric fireplace, electric uh, stove, and no gas. Yeah. And I, so that's why my husband just said, no, no. And I said, well, you phone in because this is what they're saying. <laughs> so and it's a big deal. <laughs> it, well, it is a big deal. And, and I have to, uh, as I said, I, I'm going to have to review what was said at that time because 
um, go through a lot of material in, in, a, in a week or two or three, and so yeah, I don't want to say the wrong thing right now. Yeah. Um, well, well, call me back. Okay. You, we'll get Mike to take your phone number on our mic here, our, our technical producer. We'll take your number, and we'll look into it, and we'll definitely get the definitive answer. I guess the question, and, and I've let her go, but uh, I should have asked her whether uh, whether she's planning on building new. We've got to take another break. We'll take a short break, and we'll come back. We still have time to take a couple of more calls, 604-280-9898, uh, star 9898. And, and maybe the question should be to you, would you miss it if you know if you were building a new place and you couldn't have natural gas as a result of these bylaws 604-280-9898 or start 9898 the home discovery show on news talk 980 cknw nice to have you with us thanks for sharing your time this sunday morning my name is ian power steve seaborn the little contractors here on the home discovery show uh, that, that last call that we had uh, first of all i thought it was i thought it was fun Mm-hmm. Because, you know, here's here, they're having a conversation about it, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. Is to, we're trying to have a conversation about that. So my question to you, Steve, is with your clientele, and, and I realize that uh, the lion's share of your work is renovation. However, that being said, your clientele's demand for energy efficiency and sustainable products and these kinds of things, green products, yes. Is it high? Is it medium? Is it low? Is it non-existent? Uh, how do you gauge it? Uh, we're seeing we're seeing it rising. It's still sort of medium to low, but it is rising because of what manufacturers are putting out. The products themselves are more efficient. Uh, the the building codes, the building bylaws that are around are more stringent. They're more demanding. Technology is there, and it has to be used. You just can't get the mid-efficiency furnaces anymore. You have to get the high-efficiency right. furnaces. So the technology is you, you can't you can't go back to the old-style stuff. That said, we are finding that manufacturers still put out lights that have uh, requiring the old halogen light bulbs. So we're not quite there yet, but we are getting a lot more. A lot more people are asking the questions. But what about this? What about that? Do I have to have this? Do I have to have that? Well, the idea of a high efficiency furnace is a real misnomer in my my view because you can have a high efficiency furnace that looks good on paper and have leaky windows, and it's absolutely useless. Absolutely, and that and that is the the, the word efficiency has to be used correctly. It is efficient in itself, but when put in a debilitating environment, it becomes less efficient of the use. And we hear it all the time. People say, "My bills have gone up." It's supposed to be down. This is one of the things that I like about passive house is that it it is a holistic view. It's a system. It's not one component versus another. Right. It it, it all has to marry together. It all has to work together. The other other part that I wanted to ask you about, though, is while it seems that your demand is low, though you are moving in that direction because that's what manufacturers are, are making available, is cost the... Is that the biggest thing that, that people, when they come to you and they say, I want you to put on this addition onto my house, and you know in your heart of hearts it's going to be X amount of dollars, and they say, well, I can only do it for this amount of money, and then you find maybe find ways where you can legitimately cut corners for them to, to at least try to meet them somewhere down the road. So what at what point is cost driving this, and what point is environmental concern driving it? Well, we are, we are, we're all consumers. I mean, my clients as well, and we're all chasing the bottom line, sometimes at the loss of efficiency. But uh, 
um, as Dr. Moore was saying, we are going to have to, somebody's got to pay for it. We have to move into that, whether it's just not available or whether we are, the builder is, the homeowner is, or the environment is. And I respect that. And you're right. Somebody will have to pay for it. But many people, and I'm not saying that I, I, I feel this way, although I live in a, 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 my house was built in 1976. I have single pane windows. I've got drafts in every single room. And quite frankly, I like it. Right. I do like it. And, and my home in the wintertime is probably a little cooler than most. Again, I like that. Maybe that's what I'm used to. The thought of having a passive house low is really attractive to me because I know how comfortable and how energy efficient it can be. But, but the fact of the matter is most people say, yeah, somewhere down the line, somebody's going to have to pay for it. But right now, it's not going to be me. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the thing. You're the first one that's going to get hit with a bill if you were renovating. If you're building, you're still going to get hit with it because the builder's costs are going up. So it begs the question, then, should I wait now until this becomes mainstream or should I act upon it now? And I guess it, and the answer, it's almost rhetorical because the answer is, what is your legitimate concern for sustainability? Right. And so get your education. Don't jump on full feet now. Get, get education. Find out what has to happen, for, particularly for renovation. If you're building new, you're going to look at the whole thing holistically, but don't go changing something because that says it's efficient. And as you said, you're going to upset everything else. Don't seal your windows up because you like that draft, that draft that means the house has got to breathe. One of the things that I did not ask Dr. Moore, uh, Associate Dean of Building Design and Construction Technology at BCIT, was about retrofitting because when you're building from new, you've got a lot more options. Yes. When you're retrofitting, that can be a, a much bigger challenge. Well, it is because the, the laws, the, the bylaws and the city's, uh, uh, the building code says you need this. You need an R value of that on your exterior wall. So if you have a two by four wall, you have to fur it out or you have to add spray foam insulation. Some municipalities don't like spray foam insulation. So as you're mandated to do certain things with what you have, now you're rebuilding something that wasn't a problem now becomes. Be sure to join us on the Home Discovery Show Facebook page. You can always contact us through that or through CKNW. Our podcast is posted there shortly after this broadcast. Our thanks to Mike Given, our technical producer, and for Steve Seaborn, the little contractor. My name is Ian Power. Stay with me. Vancouver Consumer is next on News Talk 980 CKNW.